If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan Pittman and I have the pleasure of serving as the senior pastor here as well as one of our elders. And we are absolutely thrilled that you're with us, worshiping with us in the room and or worshiping with us online. And hopefully when you came in the room, if you are here in the building, you picked up um, a worship guide. And on that worship guide, I picked up the wrong thing myself. On that worship guide, on the back side of the worship guide, you'll see sermon notes. And so this morning we'll be in uh, Acts chapter 17, and then you'll see down at the bottom where we'll be next week. And if you're a guest um, and you would like to give us some information about yourself, you can do that by filling out this connection card. And then if anyone needs information about the church, whether you're a guest or not, if you have a prayer request, be sure and use this, and uh, then you can drop this in the offering, box, offering plate when it's passed. You could put it in the box as well, but when the offering plate is passed a little bit later in the service, you can drop that in there. Um, we do have a few things going on in addition to Vacation Bible School that I do want to draw to your attention, uh, one of which is our stewardship intensive that's happening on Saturday, June the 24th. Um, all of us need to participate in, in, a, in a study of God's uh, giving us opportunity to be good stewards of what uh, he has blessed us with. And so I would encourage you to sign up to be a part of that uh, because all of us need to learn how we can steward the things we have and then how we as a church family can do the same thing. You'll be blessed by it and our church family will be blessed by it as well. It's happening on Saturday, June the 24th um, and you can sign up online. Uh, the cost is $8 uh, because you'll get a book with that and then uh, if you would need childcare, that's free and you can let us know about that. And then one other thing I do want to draw attention to is we have a family celebration coming up the day after that. It'll be Sunday, June the 25th, so that's three weeks from today. It'll be at 5 p.m. Uh, we'll be having a night of worship, and we'll be singing a lot and worshiping and uh, celebrating the things that God's doing in the life of our church, and we will be taking a quick vote as a part of that evening. So mark your calendars. Be here if you're in town on Sunday, June the 25th at 5 o'clock for the family celebration. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the sermon, and I want to ask you a question. How do you personally react to sin? H how do you react to sin? Do you ignore it, or do you speak out against it? I, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, okay, are we talking about my sin or somebody else's? Because if it's somebody else's, I'm speaking out against it. If it's mine, I might choose to ignore it. That's a wrong answer. But the question in all seriousness is, whether in your life or in the lives of others, when you see sin, when you're aware of sin, how do you react to it? When Paul, we're studying Paul, the life of Paul as he's, uh, I mean, the book of Acts is not about Paul, it's about the work of the Holy Spirit, but the second half of the book carries along with it Paul's missionary journeys. And as we look at the life of Paul, today we're going to see that Paul enters into the city of Athens. And when he gets to Athens, he sees all of the depth of their sin, and the question is, how would he respond? And so as we read this text this morning, let's consider how Paul responds, and then therefore, how are we to respond to sin as well? So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn to Acts chapter seven, uh, 6, which chapter are we in? We are in chapter 17. In my notes, I say 16, and I gave them 16 as well. I'm sorry about that, guys. We are in chapter 17. I gave them the wrong chapter type, number. We are in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. I probably even had it wrong on my notes. Let's see. Nope, I got it right on the notes. There we go. All right. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. I inverted my numbers when I gave it to them 
for the screen. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be a Bible near you in a seat around you. Feel free to take that with you. That'll be our gift to you if you'd like to take it with you. All right, Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted, time, uh, allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among, also, whom, among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, I can't say that word, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So... Here is Paul. Paul has just, if you were here last week, you know that we read the account of what took place in the city of Berea. And Paul has escaped Berea because his life was threatened. And with him had been Paul and Silas. But at the end of verse 15 in this text, we see that Paul and Silas stay behind in Berea while Paul goes by himself on to Athens. And when he gets to Athens we see a city that's a little past its heyday. It had already kind of hit its golden years three or four hundred years prior, but it's still a very influential, important city. And Athens was at that time 
a very cultural, intellectual city of that region. And we know from what Paul says, as well as what history tells us, that the city of Athens was full of architectural magnificence. It had scholars and philosophers, and it had many idols and shrines to other gods. As I was studying this week, I found out that there's a, uh, a famous guy, uh, you wouldn't know him because he lived 50 years after that, but uh, the name is Pausanias or something like that. He was a Greek geographer, and basically kind of what I saw in this is this guy traveled all over Greece, and he blogged about his travels. Now, granted, he didn't really blog because they didn't have web, uh, the, the web then, but he did travel and make records of his travels. He made observations of the cities that he visited. Well, one time, 50 years or so after Paul was in Athens, he shows up, this guy shows up in uh, Athens. And here's what he recorded. He said it was easier to meet a god or a goddess on Main Street of Athens than it was to meet a person. And the fact is, it was true. Uh, Historians tell us that approximately 10,000 people lived in Athens. 10,000. Do you want to take a guess at how many shrines and idols they had around the city? Does one or two people want to take a guess? Somebody, come on, somebody take a number. All right, I see a hand back there. Huh? 15,000, that's a good guess. 40,000. All right, I'm going to meet y'all in the middle-ish. 30,000. There were 10,000 people in the city of Athens, and there were approximately 30,000 shrines to gods. So that is the environment that Paul finds himself in. So now maybe you understand why verse 16, look at it. Why in verse 16, it says that when when Paul looked across the city, his spirit was provoked within him. His spirit was provoked within him. In other words, he was greatly upset. He was troubled. He was distressed. There's a paraphrase, not a translation, a paraphrase of Scripture called the message. And Eugene Peterson wrote this down. And here's what he wrote when he described the word provoked. The message says that when Paul looked at the city, the more he saw, the angrier he got. So Paul has this mixture of emotions as he sees the idols and he sees the spiritual lacking of depth and he sees the sin and depravity of the city. He's angry, he's distressed, he's disturbed, he's sad, he's mourning, he's angry. He's got all of these things going on because he knew that these people were lost. He saw the spiritual confusion and the lostness of the city and it distressed him, it angered him. And it saddened him. The question I have for us, the question I have for you, do you ever find yourself with this type of severe emotional concern when you consider the spiritual state of our city and our society? Do you ever find yourself, like Paul, with this emotional, visceral reaction to the sinfulness of our city and our culture. I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, when I think about other people voting this way or that way, it angers me. And I want to see America be great again and all of these things. No, I'm not asking you about politics. I'm not asking about policy. I'm not asking about how you vote. Those things are important. 
But in this scenario, I'm asking, when you see our culture, do you see the sin of our culture, our society, our city, and does it grieve your heart? All too often, we don't react like Paul does. All too often, we don't speak out like Paul does because we don't see it like Paul does. We go about our own life and we disregard the sin and the chaos that's going on around us. All too often, I think, when we look at sin, we go to one of two polar extremes. We either have become completely desensitized to the sin around us or we become oversensitized to it. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Either we become so desensitized that we ignore sin and we focus on only loving our neighbors and disregarding, turning a blind eye, sticking our head in the sand, ignoring sin and not wanting to speak out against it. The other danger, if we're not careful, is we get on our soapbox and we preach and we rail and we point a finger and we yell and scream. And you're like, Alan, you're talking pretty loud, but you know me, I talk loud all the time. And we get angry, not at the sin. Instead, we focus our anger at the person. So my question is, can we somewhere be in the middle and focus on loving our neighbor in such a way that their sin angers us and saddens us and we have to speak about it? We need to respond in similar fashion to how Paul responds because Paul responds according to the heart of God. Look down at verse 17. Paul's reaction in the ESV is found in that first word in verse 17, so. When he saw the sin of the city, the only thing he could do was preach the truth of the gospel. It says he saw the sin, so. He reasoned in the synagogue and in the marketplace and with those he happened to meet, and verse 18, with the philosophers. And what we see is, that Paul was so moved by the sin of the city that his only option was to preach the gospel everywhere he went. So when you and I see the sin of our city and of our culture and our society, is our response to lovingly and yet truthfully preach and present the gospel. There are Three places that you'll see in verse 17 and 18. Three places or three audiences that Paul preached to. We see he first went to the synagogue. Do you remember his rhythm? Every time he went to a new city, where did he go? He looked for the synagogue. He went to the synagogue to preach. So the first audience that he has is the people of the synagogue, the, the Jewish people and the God-fearers, the Gentiles who were not, uh, were not Jewish, but they were going to the synagogue. The second place he shows up is the marketplace. The marketplace is, doesn't mean that he was necessarily right by the vegetables or, or by the, the, the furniture. It means he was in the public square. He was out in the public arena. He was downtown. He was with the people. There were people walking beside him left and right. And when he got there, it says there in verse 17 that he spoke to those who happened to be there. So everyone around him, he preached the gospel. And then 18 tells us that part of his audience was philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, 
The verse goes on from there and says that the, the philosophers then invite him to the Areopagus, which was the place where the philosophers got together. And the place and the location of the city council that was referred to as the Areopagus. This group was the group that would deal with ethical, cultural, religious matters and also kind of check out visiting teachers and lecturers. And so therefore, it was natural for them to invite Paul to go speak to them. He wasn't on trial. They just wanted to hear him speak. Now, verse 18. Verse 18 mentions two philosophical groups, right? Two groups of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. I don't claim to know everything there is to know about philosophy. If you hear me talk, you know I'm not much of a philosopher. But here are a couple of things about each of those groups. The Epicureans felt like happiness was the main goal of life. The Stoics felt like that everyone should live a virtuous, ethical life and try to live out according to their conscience. That was kind of where these two groups were. Now, I want you to look back at verse 17. In verse 17, it says he began to preach, and the word that he uses in the ESV is that he began to reason with them. He reasoned with those around him. The word reason, the definition of it in the Greek is, involves speaking, yes, but it also includes dialogue and conversation. In other words, Paul, when he preached the gospel because of the sin of the people, he began to preach it with a generous honesty and truth. He was loving and kind and engaged with them instead of just pointing his finger and railing at them while he was very blatantly pointing out the error of their sins. May we be like Paul. When we share the gospel, may we do so with a generous honesty and truthfulness that speaks to the sinfulness of the people and yet of the person and yet does so in love. Did you notice that the philosophers kind of were confused by what Paul said? Look down in verse 18, and the question is, what does this babbler wish to say? They called him a babbler. In our hope group this week, we kind of briefly looked at this passage, and I found something interesting about the Greek here. The word babbler literally means seed picker. So they called him a seed picker. You're like, why are they calling him a seed picker? Because essentially, they're accusing him of going along like a bird would and scavenge for seeds. And you get a little bit of this seed, and then a little bit of that seed, and a little bit of seed from over here. And you just kind of pick and choose and grab all these things. And essentially, they're saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just grabbing from here and here and here, and you're trying to synthesize everything. And then you're regurgitating it, and you don't really even understand it. Oh, the irony with which these words are spoken if you don't know why I say irony, look at verse 21. Luke says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And they're accusing Paul of just gathering new stuff and spitting it out. Well, it was new to them, but he wasn't a seed picker. It was actually them who were seed pickers. And so they invite him to go and speak to the, 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 the Areopagus. And, and why did they do that? The reason they did is because they were confused by his preaching. What was he preaching? We see that he was preaching Jesus and Jesus' resurrection. At that time, the Greek people, the philosophers, those who were at the Areopagus absolutely did not believe in resurrection at all. When you died, you went to Hades, and that was the end of the story. Finale, kaput. 
And so they don't know what this message is that Paul is preaching, and so they have him come and preach to them. Now, let's look at verse 22. In verse 22, he begins his speech, his sermon, to those at the Areopagus, and he does so with a compliment that also may be a little bit of a backhand as well. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. The word religious can mean religious or it can mean superstitious. And so he's beginning with an identity with them. And he says, guys, I see it. Like you're trying to worship. And so you should be complimented for that. He's trying to find a common ground for them. But then he points out something that's an error of their ways. In verse 23, he talks about the altar to the unknown God. And then based on the fact that they are religious, based on the fact that they have an altar to an unknown God, Paul steps out and he says, now let me share with you about who God really is. And so instead of making fun of them, he clearly begins to preach the gospel. He begins to preach to them the one true God who has made an effort to make himself known to them. And then before we get to the main points of the sermon, look down at verse 34. We see that as a result of his preaching, there wasn't much of a response. The results were minimal, but some do believe. I want us to look real quickly at the two character traits of who God is that Paul preaches that day. The first one is this. It's on your notes. As Paul preaches God, he preaches the sovereign, all-powerful creator. He says, guys, you're trying to worship God. You've got it wrong, but let me tell you who God is. He's big, he's powerful, he's majestic, he's glorious, he's holy, he's perfect, he's sovereign, he's our creator. And so you'll see there in verse 24 that he begins to describe who God is. He, he, he has power, he's majesty, he has glory, he's the one true God, he's the creator, he's the sustainer and source of all life. He cannot be contained by anyone or anything. You've got all these idols, all these shrines, but our God, the one true God, is bigger than all of that. You can't put him in a box. And then he says, as sovereign, all-powerful creator, this God has made us, and it's not us who have made him. If we're not careful, even us as Christians can begin to try to make God in our image, forgetting that it's the other way around. We are made in his image. We can't define God. He defines us. So he goes on from there. Look at verse 29. In verse 29, he says, he cannot, this one true God cannot be like what you think. He can't be like gold or silver or stone. He can't be reflected by an idol. No, an idol cannot reflect who God is. Rather, we as his creation are to reflect who God is. Now, in this text, we don't have a word-for-word sermon that Paul preached. You realize Paul preached much longer, probably, than just the few couple minutes that it takes to read that text. And so while we don't have it word-for-word, what we also can maybe pick up from here is that he didn't quote any of the Hebrew Scripture. Now, he may have, he very well could have, but Luke did not record him quoting any of the scripture rather what he did was he taught the old testament 
He preached from the Old Testament without necessarily quoting it verbatim. He's not talking philosophical talk. He is talking Old Testament thought process. And then we see in verse 25 a a description of this sovereign, all-powerful God. When it says in verse 25, the God who made everything, the creator God, gives all mankind life and breath and everything. He goes on and says that this creator God made everything from one man. Y'all know that one man's name, right? That man's name is Adam. And so Paul doesn't apparently say Adam's name, but he says it all started with one man. He's preaching Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right here to them. He's saying God made everyone from one man, every nation. And he's given us our space and our time, and he's determined the boundaries within which we are to live our lives. In other words, what he says is, all people everywhere over the entire planet are all connected to the one true creator God, whether they know it or not. And Paul's saying, I am preaching to you not a foreign God, I'm preaching to you the one true God. He made you, he made everyone, it came from one man, you need to listen to who this God is. All too often we act as if God is only God of us. I remember when this foolish boy named Alan went to seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, And as I sat in church in Kansas City, Missouri, in a Southern Baptist church that believed just like I did, I went, oh my goodness, you mean people in Missouri believe in the same Jesus I do? It's not just Texans? No, the reality is God has made us all. Side note real quick, um, if you know much about our group, that's not directly affiliated with our church, but we partner with them, and that's seed sowers, and they do incredible ministry. And I've always been intrigued because seed sowers is made up of women from all kinds of places. They added somebody this week. They've got another continent covered. They've got uh, the North America covered. They've got Africa covered. They've got Asia covered. Now we're just looking for some ladies maybe from uh, South America and Europe that can join them. But in all seriousness, it's a glorious picture to see these ladies work together coming from different nationalities and different languages. God has made everyone, all people, everywhere. Then look in verse 28. Depending on your translation, it may or may not be invented, it may or may not have quotations, but there are two quotes in verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, and the other quote says, for we are indeed his offspring. Both of those quotes are from their philosophers and poets and pop culture, if you will, and he uses those not because the original writer used it to point to the one true God, but because he sees the truth in this, and he says these point to the one true God, and it allows him to preach more about who God is that God gave us our lives God gives gives us our essence of being that God is the father of us all not because all of us are Christians but because we are all his by creation not necessarily by spiritual response yet Paul, uh, Paul says that God has over authority over us all And he points that further out by looking at verse 31. He says in verse 31 that a day is coming, the day is appointed, that God has appointed a fixed day of judgment, and that in verse 31 that a man will judge us, and that man has been proven by his resurrection, so that man is Jesus Christ. 
You may be wondering, why didn't he say Jesus' name here? I don't know why he didn't say Jesus' name here. Although he may have, and Luke just didn't write it down. But if you look back in the previous verses, when he's preaching in the marketplace, when he's preaching at the synagogue, when he's talking to the philosophers, he clearly preaches the name of Jesus and his resurrection. And now he's saying that Jesus' resurrection points to this time where God is going to bring judgment. And that judgment is for sin and that God judges our sin. God, verse 27, why did God do all of this? Why is God creator, powerful, make us all? Why did he do this? Why is he all powerful? Why does he do the things he does? Verse 27, God does it so that these people, that you and I would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So what we see here is first, God is other than us. He is above us, he is beyond us, he is holy, he is perfect, he's sovereign. At the same time, the second point there on your note says, the God who can be known. Yes, he is sovereign, yes, he is large, yes, he is other, but at the same time, he is transcendent, he is with us, he is near us, and he can be known. Remember, Paul started this whole thing by saying, guys, I notice you're religious, but I notice you've got a plaque on one of your shrines, and it says, to the unknown God. Basically, they were trying to cover all their bases. They're like, we got a God for this, a God for that. we got 30,000 of those gods. We don't know. We might have missed one, so let's just put a plaque on it and slap it on there, to the unknown God. Paul says, you can know the one true God. He doesn't say that God, Yahweh, is this unknown God because they're confused. They have all these deities and these divinities that they're confused about. But he says, the one true God can be Known. In fact, not only can he be known, he actually wants us to know him. You want to know something interesting that I found out about the word unknown? In verse 23, they've got a plaque to the unknown God. When I looked at the Greek, here's what the Greek word is for unknown. The Greek word, please pardon me because I'm not a Greek speaker, but the word is agnostos. Does that sound like anything? Agnostic. It's the combination of, of not, A, knowing, gnosis, put them together and you have agnostic. Basically, he's saying these philosophers, these Athenians, think that they can't know God and in many ways they are functioning as agnostics. Then, in verse 30, Paul gives them the good news. Look in verse 30. It says in verse 30, well, it's not good news, but it's the truth, all right? It says, the times of ignorance, the agnostic, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's saying the time is over. Your ignorance can be over with. Listen to what I'm preaching about this one true God. Listen to what I'm preaching about this Messiah, Jesus Christ. Listen to what I'm saying about his resurrection, and you can know the one true God. You see, the Athenians basically felt like they knew everything. But they fell short on the most important thing, and that is they did not know God. And so Paul stands up boldly, and he calls them ignorant, which they probably, he didn't call them ignorant, but he said, you are acting ignorantly because you are void of the knowledge of this one true God. And so he begins to tell them about who God is. He says, all of this is changing. God is going to bring 
clearness to who he is. He's revealing himself to you through this preaching that Paul was sharing with them. Look at verse 27. In verse 27, he says, basically describes the Athenians. He says, you are feeling your way toward God. You're seeking God. You're trying to find him. It's a picture of a person groping around in the dark. Have you ever been in a new environment and the lights are off and you're trying to find the light switch? I mean, every time I come in this room, I've been here for five years, but every time I come in here and it's dark outside and the lights are off in here, for the life of me, I cannot find the light switch. Like I'm feeling on the wall, you know, it's like I can't find it. It's the picture of these people. They're trying to find God. They don't know they're trying to find the one true God. They're trying to find God. They're groping in the darkness. And he says, guys, he's right there. He is findable, not because of what you have done, but because who has revealed himself to be. So Paul had been preaching about the powerful God of creation. God reveals himself in creation. We see that all throughout scripture. We see that because he reveals himself through creation that men are without excuse. However, creation in and of itself does not point us to Jesus Christ. God has to reveal himself beyond creation to help us see who Jesus is. And Paul says, this man I'm preaching to you, Jesus Christ, he is the one who makes this unknowable God knowable. Paul says, I'm not saying he quotes Jesus, but he says this concept that Jesus shared back in John 14, 6. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14, 6? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And what Paul is preaching to them is there's one true God. And this one true God made us all. This one true God wants us to know him. This one true God is bringing punishment for sin. He's calling you to repent. And the only way you can repent, the only way you can see him for who he is, is if you understand who Jesus Christ is. And so my question to you this morning is, do you really know him? I'm not asking, do you know about God? I'm not saying, do you know about him? I'm saying, do you know him? See, these people thought they knew who the gods were. And then just because they didn't know who this one was, they stuck a sign on it. But the reality is they didn't know who God was at all. And some of us in this room, maybe we think we know God, but we only know about him. My question is, do you know him? See, the only way to the Father is by Jesus Christ. The only way to the Father is not some universal like, oh, God is big and powerful and we should serve him. No, God, that is true. The, the picture is, I am a sinner. I'm a sinner and my sin has separated me from the holy, perfect creator God, the sovereign God, who says a day of judgment is coming and the one who will judge you is the one I brought up from the dead. See, Jesus has every right to judge us for our sins because he was he is perfect. He was tempted in every way we are and yet was without sin. He lived the life that you and I are called to live and yet we can't. Jesus died a death that you and I deserve because of our sin and yet he didn't deserve it. He died in our place. But the good news is that Jesus didn't just die on a cross. 
he was raised on the third day. So my question is, do you know the Father? Do you genuinely know him because of what Jesus has done on your behalf? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus? Do you know him? Do you walk in intimate relationship with Jesus on a daily basis? See, there's some people in this room that, and watching online that may not know Jesus. You've never trusted in him for salvation. Today can be the day of salvation. There's others of us in this room, we do know Jesus, but my question is, do we live on an everyday basis as a fact that we know him and we're living for him, or are we functioning in some ways like an agnostic and just doing life our own way? You see, God is knowable, but if we're going to know him, we have to understand who he has revealed himself to be. And the way we understand who he's revealed himself to be is not just my made-up imagination and myths and fairy tales and good stories and feel-good stuff. It's the word of God. The only way we know who God is is who he has revealed himself to be, and it's revealed in Scripture. Now, can God speak to a pastor, a preacher, a friend, a another brother or sister in Christ, yes, but he'll never speak through them contrary to what his word teaches. And so if I need to know who God is, I must know his word so I can understand who he has revealed himself to be. So last week we talked about the importance of reading God's word. This is why we read God's word, not because it's a busy exercise, not because we want to feel good about ourselves, but because we want to know him. This powerful, almighty God is knowable, but to know him we must spend time with him. My question to you now, you're like, oh my goodness, Alan, you've preached two points, you've already gone over your time, and now there's a third point. No, this is a summary question. The God that is the one true God that Paul points to is the holy, perfect creator God, and at the same time, he's knowable because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. But now I want us to turn inward here. I hope you've been thinking about yourself all along, yes, and what God's saying to you, but I want us to reflect inwardly. Here's the question, it's on the on the notes, what distracts you from the one true God? What distracts you from the one true God? What was it that the Athenians were distracted by? I don't know, maybe the 30,000 idols that were in their city. You're like, oh my goodness, good deal. I've walked the streets of College Station, I've never once seen an idol, so we're in good shape. No, the reality is this. Just as Paul told them to abandon the parodies the false gods, the idols of their age. God is telling you and I to abandon the parodies, the false idols, the false gods in our age. You see, the Athenians were distracted by the idols that filled the city. And just like Athens, our cities, our lives, our world is smothered in idols. In some countries, in some regions of the world, literal idols that are carved wood or stone. But in our situation, probably not that. But you and I have placed idols of things up as our substitute for God. We've put things in our lives that are functioning as if they are our Savior, and they are not and cannot be. Recently, a legend of a Christian pastor and leader by the name of Tim Keller passed away. And here's one of his quotes about idols. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. What 
idol is distracting you from God? What is it in your life, what is it in my life that we have allowed to absorb our heart and imagination more than God? What have we put above God in priority? The reality is God should not be our first priority. He is the priority. And then when he is the priority, all the other spokes of our lives begin to reflect the one truth, and that is that we should glorify God with everything that we do. But all too often, we try to say, well, God's my first priority. That's why I go to church on the first day of the week. And so I start my week off, and I start the morning off and then by golly when church is over with I can go eat a sandwich and then I can be a good moral person and I can kind of live my life and I can be successful and I can focus on this this and this no we should live our lives for God in every aspect shape form and fashion so my question for us is what distracts you what is distracting you from the one true God some of the idols that we place in our lives or outright wicked, vile, evil, disgusting sins. And those probably are blatantly obvious to you whether you're choosing to remove those idols or not. But the more challenging ones are the ones that are more subtle in nature, but in reality, they are distracting us from God. And therefore, they're sinful. What idols are distracting you from God? It could be power, it could be man's approval. It could be your comfort. It could be your control of things. It could be your money, your possessions, your stuff, your home, your families, your spouse, your kids. You're like, oh, hold up. Did you just say my kids can be an idol? Yes. If I'm not careful, I can make my life all about my kids, all about my wife, all about my stuff, all about my bank account, all about my success at work, all about my image, all about my plans, all about my success, all about perfection, all about influence. And one that I just felt like I should write down that maybe some, you're like, dude, I'm not struggling with any of those. I like to kick it back and sit in the recliner when I get home from a busy day at work. It could be that our idol is laziness. I know the Proverbs talk about sluggards quite a bit, right? Guys and gals, all too often we have functional idols in our lives and on the outside they may look good but the reality is we have placed them above God and therefore the goodness of the thing has been negated because we have put it above God love your family serve them well but serve them well by enjoying life together and pointing each other to Jesus Christ Seek to be successful at your work, but in the midst of that success, however you describe it, use that as a platform to preach the gospel and share the gospel and to be Jesus to your coworkers. It's not wrong even to focus on getting some money and building up a savings account, but if we're hoarding money or if we're being greedy with our money or we're not sharing with our money, then that's a sin. That's one reason why this stewardship course would be helpful for us to re-situate our eyes 
Guys, I just feel like most of us in this room, whether it's an everyday thing or not, we're struggling by being distracted by the things in our lives and something's got to give. What is distracting you? What is your response? If you've seen an idol in your life today based on the things I've shared and things that the Lord has revealed to you, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to confess your sin? Are you going to turn from those idols today? Or are you going to just go out this door and be, continue to be living as a functional agnostic, not really knowing the one true God because you're too busy on the other things? See, God's our creator. You're his offspring He's given you your life, your breath. He's given you everything. But do you know him? Or are you too busy putting things up that are distracting you from him? Guys, this morning is time for us to demolish the idols in our lives. And some of us may need to do that by putting something on our connection card. Some of us may need to do that by coming to the altar and praying. Some of us may need to come and pray with me or grab somebody that's sitting beside you and you come pray together. Let us say yes to Jesus and say no to the other garbage in our lives and let's live for him and let's live in a way that we can vocally share the gospel with others around us without running them down and yet pointing to the truth of Jesus Christ. Because our city, our nation, our culture is in shambles. It's a mess. But there's hope in Jesus Christ. Let me lead us in prayer.